John 17 is one of the most sacred texts in all of Scripture. And it is that way because we are allowed to see the very heart of our Savior as He intercedes for us. The famed preacher Alexander McLaren spoke of this chapter when he said, We may well despair of doing justice to the deep thoughts of this prayer, which volumes would not exhaust. Who is worthy to speak or to write about such sacred words? The Lord led me to this chapter this particular Sunday, and I must admit that as I was reading it and studying it, it is quite overwhelming when you start breaking everything down. And there just is not enough time to just get into everything that is, uh, that is worthy of being spoken of today. There have been many who have called this prayer the Lord's high priestly prayer. Many have said as we read it that we are entering into the holiest of holies. John Phillips writes, We have been listening in the preceding chapters of Jesus talking to his followers. We continue now listening as he talks to his father. And like Moses at the burning bush, we would do well to remove the shoes from our feet. For the place whereon we now stand is holy ground. I want to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. and I'm going to focus just on a few verses. We'll highlight many. But stand with me this morning as we begin in John 17, in verse number 1. And I want to, I want you to, I want to ask you, first of all, to read the first four verses along with me. John 17, verse 1. These words spake Jesus... And lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. If you're in the habit of underlining your Bible, I'd encourage you to underline verse number 4. Because I think that is a very powerful statement. If you want to honor the Lord, I pray that when we get to the end of our life, that, this, that that verse itself could be placed on our tombstone. I'll read it again. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Jesus finished what he was sent here to do. And I pray in our own life that our, that our if we have any ambition whatsoever, that it is that we glorify God while we're here and we finish what he has given us to do. 
I want you to move down to verse number 20 with me for the sake of time. This time I just want you to listen as I read. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know. That's Jesus speaking there. That the world may know that thou hast sent me. And hast loved them as thou hast loved me. This is not just a theme or a vision or a motto of your pastor. It, is, it flows from the same heart of our Savior. Who is praying to the Father just before he is betrayed and led to the cross. He is praying that all the world might No. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we move forward, Lord, we're praying for your presence. God, how I need your help this morning. God, I I pray that you'll help me to preach your word. There are too many pulpits across our nation today who preach a lot of fluff. A lot of feel-good sermons that make people smile and laugh and they feel good about themselves and they leave and yet come Monday morning they forgot everything that they have heard. Nothing has been life-changing, nothing. There's no transformation that has taken place. God, I am praying today that you'll help me to preach your word, your message. Not an outline that is, that is laid out by the thoughts of man, but God, that you would help me to preach your truth because it is your word that transforms and changes lives. And God, I pray that you'll use me this morning, that you will will just hide me behind the cross, that people might see our Savior and might be led of the Spirit of God to respond. And God, that you take your word and that your Spirit would take something that I say and that you would apply it upon every life because you can do that. Lord, I pray that we see you today. That we get a glimpse of your heart for us here in this passage as you are praying for for us today, 2,000 years ago. God, may we get a hold of truth. And may it inspire us and encourage us and help us and move us to draw near to you. Your will be done. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to get in the habit, if you're not already in the habit of doing so, to pull out a pen and a piece of paper and to start writing down some notes of some different things. We're gonna, we're, I'm going to mention a lot of scriptures, and I want you to write them down. Some of them I'm just going to read personally, and you're going to hear them, and, and, I, and I pray that you'll go back and look at them. Some of them I'm going to have you to turn. We've gotten lazy in our country today. 
And we expect the preacher to put everything in a, in a PowerPoint, an outline, and, and, and we write everything out, and everybody looks at that. And today we live in a day where nobody's, nobody has their Bible because it's all up on the screen, and nobody flips through their Bible, therefore no one learns their Bible. And I don't want that to be the case. So I want you to get in the habit, if you're not already in the habit of doing so, of taking notes and writing some things down. Because I know this in my own life, that when I write things down, it helps me to remember those things. In John chapter 17, Christ has now wrapped up his public ministry. And he's traveling through Jerusalem as he is teaching some final lessons to the apostles. And at this point, he'd be somewhere around the temple as he is making his way outside the walls of Jerusalem. When we get to chapter 18 and verse number 1, he's just outside the city walls and he crosses over the brook Kidron and he's on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane where we know that prayer that he prays. For the, for, his, for the Lord's cup to pass, but nevertheless, not my will, but God the Father's will be done. We know about that prayer. There he would be on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. But right now, he begins to offer up the longest prayer that we have recorded. And many times in the Bible, Jesus prayed, but oftentimes he went off to himself to pray. But not here. Here he is praying publicly. Here he is praying loud enough so that those who are traveling with him hear him. And we know that John at least hears every word that Jesus says because the Holy Spirit uses him to record this prayer for us in the scriptures. If you're taking notes this morning, you can divide this prayer into three subgroups. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus is first praying for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he is praying for the 11 and those who believed on him at that time. And then he gets down to verses 20 through 26, and there Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for the future church. He's praying for us who believe in him in the future and those who are going to believe after us. I want to direct your attention to verse number 1 when he begins to pray. And he says, Their Father, the hour is come. John speaks more of this hour than any of the other gospel writers. In John chapter number 2, at the wedding of Cana, when there was a need, Mary came to Jesus and presented to him that need. And Jesus said in verse number 4, What have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. When Jesus was speaking in the temple in John chapter 7 and verse 30, he says, Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. Again in John chapter 8 and verse 20, The Bible says that neither could they lay hands on him when he spoke in the treasury, for his hour was not yet come. But you're in the Gospel of John, and you're just a few chapters away, so turn over with me to chapter number 12. And here I want you to see that as we're progressing, the hour is now drawing near. 
Now I want you to see what Jesus said. Let's begin in verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Move down to verse 27. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 32. Jesus again says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. Of course, that being on the cross. His hour was marked by his coming death. But it was also marked by his ascending return to heaven. Look, look one chapter over, John 13 and verse 1. It says there, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. So as his hour is coming, it is nearing that he would depart this world and ascend into heaven as he does so in Acts chapter 1. Then go to chapter 16. And we'll, begin, we'll be reading in verse 32. Because we'll see here that his hour is also marked by the failure of his followers. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. So when his hour comes, those closest with Jesus, they scatter because Christ knows our weakness. And the truth is, let's be honest with ourselves, every one of us in here this morning has weaknesses. We could talk about physical weaknesses, and that's usually what we mention in prayer requests. But we all have spiritual weaknesses. And every one of us at times we're prone to wander and leave the God we love. We are flames flickering in the wind. One moment we're on fire for the Lord and the next moment we're wondering if, that's, if that flame is going to puff out. The Lord has his will for us is much more than that. In verses 6 through 19 of our text... Jesus intercedes for all of those who will ashamedly depart from him and deny him that very night. We're just one chapter away of those that he is praying for fleeing from him. Would you hold your place here and turn your Bible to Psalm 103? Why, why would Jesus, if Jesus knows how big we're about to fail, why is he interceding for us? Why is he praying for us? I think the reason is important for us to remember 
and we understand a great deal about God. In Psalm 103, read with me in verse number 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, and he remembereth that we are dust. He knows we're not going to be perfect. He knows that we're going to make mistakes. We like to point fingers at others when we should be pointing the finger at ourselves. He knows that sometimes people are going to walk away. These who had, go back to chapter 17, these who would later flee from the Lord and were closest to the Lord were most impacted by the word of God. And because of this, they would come back to the Lord despite their mistakes. When I was a little boy, I, uh, I'd argue with my parents. Did you ever do that? They would come up with some rule that I did not like. They would say something that I did not agree with, and I was about five or six years old at the time. I would write these nasty letters to my parents. You hate me, you don't like me, I don't like you, I hate you. I would write these nasty letters and I would threaten to run away. And there were a few times that I actually packed my things, what I could carry, and walked out the door. But I never made it very far. I never made it very far because I knew that what that what was out there for me was scary. And the truth is, I knew that I was still loved back home. I knew that those people that I didn't agree with still cared about me. And even at a young age, I'd get to the point where I realized that they really want what's best for me. And so when I finally dropped my stubbornness, I would go back in the house and I would hug my mother or my father who would forgive me because they loved me and our relationship would be restored. That is our Heavenly Father. He knows our frame. He knows that we're capable of making mistakes. But he gives us his word because of its impact upon our life and in preparation for our future. 
I want you to see in verses 8 and verse 14 that Christ had given the apostles the word. In verse 8, Jesus prays, For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. In verse 14, he says, I have given them thy word. Peter, who was amongst this group that hears Jesus praying, would later write in 1 Peter 1, 23, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. We are saved by what we are taught in the word of God. And so God giving us his word is something that is very valuable. So I am begging every one of us today to not place little value upon the preaching, the teaching, the reading, or the studying of the word of God because it is the tool that God uses to transform lives. Jesus would later pray in verse 17 of our text that it is his word of truth that sanctifies us, meaning it sets us apart. So the word of God should be very meaningful to every believer because when we learn the word, we learn more about God and his character. And it molds us and it shapes us and it helps us Secondly, they received the word. Look back in verse number 8. He says, I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them. Would you hold your place here and turn over to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew 13, verses 3 through 9, Jesus delivered unto the multitude a parable that we have named the seed and the sower. And in this parable, Jesus is teaching how we receive the word is important. He explains the parable in verses 18 through 23, and that's where I want to read. He is telling his disciples what this parable meant. And he says in verse 18, Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not... Then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth the way that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. That is an individual who hears the preaching, they hear the word of God, but they're really not, they're really not concerned with it, they're not understanding it, they're not trying to comprehend it, they really don't care. They hear it, but they really don't care. And that is seed that is just thrown to the wayside. You might call it wasted seed. Because the heart that it was sown on had no desire to receive it. Is that your heart this morning? The next one he speaks of in verse 20. But he that received the seed in the stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. He's excited. Man, that was good. Preacher, that was good preaching. With joy he receives it. But in verse 21, yet hath he not root in himself, he dureth for a while. 
And for when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. He's excited. Whoa, that's good teaching, teacher. That's good preaching. I just love your preaching. Most of the times, I'm not going to say every time, but most of the time when somebody tells me that, it's not long before they get offended by something and leave. 28 years have taught me that. You receive it with joy. It's exciting. It, it pumps you up a little bit. You, you, you've been a part of a spiritual pep rally. You're, you're, on, you're on fire. You want to do something. But when it gets out of here and now you've got to live it, that word really it never bears fruit because there's no root. Verse 22. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. And the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh fruitful. This individual, oh, they hear it, but it never bears fruit because it is so quickly forgotten. Because when you leave here, when you leave here, your mind is on your responsibilities, the cares of this world. I got to go watch the ball game. I got to go get something to eat. Our, our mind is on all these things, cares of this world, pleasures of sin for a season, things that creep in and they're, they're, they're there and they, they remove what God did on your heart on Sunday and you're not practicing it Monday through Saturday. And if we're not careful, that heart keeps repeating the cycle every single week. Is that your heart? But then he speaks of the good heart. He says in verse 23, But he that received the seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundred and some sixty and some thirty. Can I ask you this? What were you expecting when you came to church this morning? What did you pray for when you got out of bed this morning, and it is Sunday, it is the Lord's day, and you got out of that bed, you didn't hit the alarm, you, you weren't trying to sleep in a little bit longer and get ready as late as possible. I'm asking you, what were you expecting when you came this morning? When you got up this morning, how is your heart? Is it ready to receive it? Are you ready for it to grow in you and transform you and change so that it dies within you, that it could bear great fruit so that all may know? That is the heart that God is wanting to plant his word in. Go back to our text. They believed as a result of receiving the word. He says in verse 8, we'll read this verse again. For I have given to them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I come out from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. Jesus is referring here to one of the most Basic fundamentals of our faith, and that is the deity of Christ. Meaning that he is equal with God because he is God manifest in the flesh. John believed this, he understood this. Go to chapter 1. You're in the Gospel of John, go to John's first chapter. The deity of Christ, we must believe it, we must accept it if we're to be saved. 
if we're to grow in our faith. John writes in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Do you know that Jesus Christ was at creation? Move down to verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, in verse 11, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, in verse 12, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but were born of God. And the Word, capital W, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, manifest in the flesh, our Creator. That is the deity of Christ. One of the fundamentals of our faith. But do you realize today that there are millions of people who claim a belief in God, yet they deny the deity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Just because someone says, I believe in God, does not mean they're saved. You can deny, you can believe in God. You can believe God created everything. You can believe the God that the Jews believed in and deny Jesus Christ as the Son of God. There are false religions in our own community who will claim Jesus to be a son of God, but reject him as the son of God. Did you know? Did you know that in many of our popular versions of the Bible today, whose selling point is that they remove the these and the thous so that it's in our modern English and it is better for us to understand, do you realize that in many of those versions they remove the deity of Christ? If you have one of those Bibles, you ought to compare 1 John. I'll just give you an example. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. And you ought to compare one of the new versions to the, uh, to the received text found in the King James Bible. And you will find there that they remove the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, which is the Holy Trinity. And they remove that from the Bible because evidently you can't understand that. When Nathanael met Jesus in John chapter 1 and verse 49, he referred to Jesus as the Son of God, the King of Israel. In John chapter 6, after the, many of the followers left Christ, Jesus asked his disciples if they will also go away, go away. And Peter responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Following, following the, the, uh, her brother Lazarus' death, Martha told Jesus in John 11 and verse 27, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. 
and following the resurrection of Jesus. Remember Thomas? Thomas said, I, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my finger in the palm of his hands or unless I can put my hand into his side. I'm not going to believe. And suddenly Jesus appears, and what does he say? My Lord and my God. If you want to know the whole purpose of John's gospel, John writes in John chapter 20 and verse 31 that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. It is important for us to understand Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh, come to save the world from our sins. Amen? Don't deny that. The world denies that. Many religions deny that. Another important doctrine that Jesus teaches is the security of the believer. Look, look back in our text, chapter 17, look in verse 11. He says, and now I'm no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep, underline that word, through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. May I remind you of this? Jesus had just foretold that they're going to deny him and flee him. He knows Darren Tucker's going to mess up. But he's praying. He says, I've kept them. Father, keep them. The son of perdition, of course, is Judas Iscariot. And by the time Jesus prays this prayer, he's already departed the group and he's on a mission to betray Jesus. He shows back up in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 18. So it's not that Jesus lost him. It is important for us to understand Judas never received him. So Judas is not an example of a believer who lost his salvation, as some might teach. He is an example of an unbeliever who pretended to have salvation. I am afraid that there are people in churches across America who are part of a church because of its social standing and not because of their spiritual standing. For those who received his word and believed him, Jesus said in verse 12 that he kept them. Peter would later teach in 1 Peter 1, 5 that we are kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Aren't you thankful for God's power? We just read John chapter 1. Those who received him, to them gave he power to become... The, we, we become children of God by God's power. We remain children of God by God's power. Garrett has nothing to do with it. Amen? Mom and daddy has nothing to do with it. Look in John chapter 10. I want you to see this. John chapter 10. Jesus teaches in verse 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Boy, isn't it good to know that you are in his hand. He's got a grip on me, amen. 
I don't know if that's a song, but it should be. My father, verse 29, my father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. Verse 30, I and my father are one. There is Jesus teaching of the deity of Christ. I and my father are one. You're in the hand of God. You're in the hand of Christ. And no one can pluck you out of their hand. That's Jesus' word. John was so convinced of this doctrinal truth that he later wrote in 1 John 5 verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. And because of that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. I believe it's fair to say that Christ wants all the world to know that their sins are forgiven and they have everlasting life. Amen? Wouldn't you say that? He wants all the world to know that you are forgiven and that you are on your way to heaven. And your flesh is always reminding you how bad you are. People are always reminding you how bad you are. Spiritual warfare takes place to remind Justin of how bad he is. And if possible, he keeps you up and down all the time. And anybody who doesn't know where they're going can never give the right directions. Cecil Berry travels a little bit. Have you, Cecil, do you have a GPS? Well, I'll go back a little bit because you're older. You ever had to stop and ask somebody for directions? You don't want to, I know that. But we have to at times, right? Well, I'm going to tell you, if they tell you, well, I think you go up here and turn right, I'm going to tell you something, I'm going to find somebody else, wouldn't you? Has your GPS ever put you in a field? Yeah? Turn here, turn here, turn there, and you get there, and that place is nowhere in sight. Right? I want directions for somebody who knows where they're going. And so put your, I believe the Lord wants everyone to know that they have a home in heaven, that their eternal life is kept by the power of God. Next we learn in John 17 that because of their faith and what they believed, the apostles kept the word. He says in verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Well, Jesus made it very clear in John 14, verse 23. He says, if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And he will come unto him, and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. You want to destroy a relationship? Say one thing and then do something else. It'll destroy it. Tell someone you love them and then allow your behavior to say something completely different. Love and trust walk hand in hand. Oh, I love the Lord. Then keep his word. Stick with his word. Get in his word. 
Let him know what he wants you to do, where he wants you to go. Walk together with him. If we love the Lord, our love will be known by our active response to God's word. Speaking of love, let's wrap up. If time allowed, we'd look in verses 14 through 16 and we'd see that the apostles were hated by the word because of their faith. They were hated by the world because of their faith in the word Jesus gave them. And then in verses 18 and 20, Christ's word would eventually send them into the world to tell others. Verse 18. As thou hast sent me into the world... Even so have I also sent them into the world. Verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them which also shall believe on me through their word. And beginning in verse 20, Christ begins to pray for the future church, which has led us to, which has led to us in the present. And if the Lord tarries his coming, will continue long after we are gone. And his prayer for us, I want you to see, is that we stand unified in our faith. Look at verse 21. He says that all may be, what? One, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Notice, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Our unity helps the world to know who Jesus is. Verse 22, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. I wonder how the Lord feels when he sees the church today with all its division. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you have been hurt at some point in your Christian life because there was a division amongst believers in the church. If it hurts believers, imagine what it does to unbelievers. I'm not speaking of the division between those who conform the Bible to the teachings and opinions of the world. And those who are transformed from the world by the teaching of the Bible. Because there should be a division there. Jesus... Jesus speaks, he says, I, I came to divide. There's going to be a difference between the shepherds and the goats. I'm speaking of the behavior of like-minded believers. The old Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks said, Discord and division become no Christian. For wolves to worry the lambs is no wonder. But for one lamb to worry another, this is unnatural and monstrous. Warren Wearsby said, One of the things that most impresses the world is the way Christians love each other. 
and live together in harmony. It is this witness that our Lord wants in the world, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The lost world cannot see God, but they can see Christians. And what they see in us is what they, still, is what they will believe about God. If they see love and unity, they will believe that God is love. If they see hatred and division, they will reject the message of the gospel. Can I say this? We all have our differences, don't we? We all have our differences. But what I want us to see and what Jesus is praying here is that we all have much more in common. We all have the same Savior. Amen? One day, we'll all enjoy the same heaven. We're indwelled with the same spirit. We belong to the same Father and seek to do the same work. And that is witnessing to a lost world that Jesus Christ alone saves from sin. We believe the same truth and seek to follow the same example, the Lord Jesus Christ. David wrote in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. When the boys were much younger, we haven't done this in a while. When the boys were younger, they would get in big fights. They would say ugly things to one another. Sometimes it got physical. And we'd have to get in. Sometimes I just let them go. Work it out. Sometimes you had to step in. Enough's enough. And Christy and I, we would sit them down and we would try to talk to them and reason with them and basically try to teach them that what they're doing is absolute foolishness. Sometimes they wouldn't listen. And when that happened, Baker, we did the unthinkable. We did two things. The first one was we'd send them to the laundry room together. We called it the work it out room. They were to go in that room and shut the door and they would stay there until they made peace with one another. If they came out, they were in big trouble. But we made them stay in that room and they had to discuss it. They had to talk about it. They had to get over it and forgive one another so that they could move on. But sometimes that wouldn't work. And you would not believe what we would do next. We would take both of them and we would sit them. We would stand them in, right in front of us. And I would make them turn and face one another and hug each other. That's not enough. I would make them put their lips on each other's cheeks and hold them there. Ask them, is that true? Is it true? Oh, they hated that. But they knew if they didn't do it, they're going to face daddy's wrath. That was worth it. I wanted them to work it out. And they would do it. And they would hate it. And eventually, they would start laughing. And they would realize how foolish this is. And they would get over it really, really quickly. 
some of us need to work some things out. Some husbands and wives need to work some things out. Some siblings need to work some things out. Some children and parents need to work some things out. Some brothers and sisters in Christ need to work some things out because you have more in common than what you're disagreeing about. Don't we live in a divided nation? Yeah, we live in a divided nation. The bad thing is, is most of us think the way to fix it is put our right politician in there. That's not the way to fix it. The way to fix it is for people to repent of their sin and get their life right with Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the way to fix it. But we don't want to do that. He is praying that the future church, that we are one, that we are in Christ, that we are in the Father, that we're made perfect by His Spirit, that we serve together and love one another and live together so that every lost person who is looking at Somerville Baptist Church or First Baptist Church or whatever Baptist Church is looking and saying, you know what, those people have something that I don't have. Because what they probably have is hatred and division. They understand that all too well. And nobody wants a God that where everybody hates one another is divided amongst one another. But when they see people smiling on their face, people living together in joy and unity, that when the preacher is preaching and, the, and, and we love God so much that everybody has their Bible and is flipping pages. Because I love the Lord and those who love the Lord keep God's word. That they look around and, man, there's got to be something, there's something about that Bible because everybody wants to know what it says. Jesus says, I want them to be unified and together so that all may know that the Father sent Jesus to die on the cross for the sin of the world. And to know that he loves them. Boy, that'll preach, won't it? Do you know you can't fake loving the Lord? You cannot fake it. We try to all the time. But if people really pay attention, they read us. If you love the Lord, it is known. If you don't, it is known. We are known by our fruit. Hello? You're not going to fake it. We fake getting along with other believers. We fake it. We put on this holy robe of take the high road. God knows our heart. People know our heart. Amen.
If we're to help the world to know that Jesus loves them, and I pray that is our prayer, that that is the responsibility of every believer, that we want the world to know that Jesus loves them. We must seek to be transformed out of this world rather than being conformed to it. That's an important statement because there are people who believe we will reach the world by looking and behaving more like it. But Jesus prayed in verse 16 for us to be lovingly different. They are not of the world even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Doesn't mean that we don't love the world. Love the people in the world or of the world. We love and we care and we're compassionate and we want to help. But there is a difference. For all to know and believe on Christ through our word, our testimony. In verse 20, verse 20 says, I've sent them that they, that all those who believe on their word. We must have a testimony of love and joy and unity as we all stand together in Christ. Love identified Jesus Christ, did it not? It should mark all of us. John Philip said, Jesus loved Judas as much as he loved John. I see that thing on Facebook just like all of you see it. Jesus loved Judas and people get convicted of that and they think, man, that's powerful, that's good stuff. That is the truth. That is the truth. Jesus did love Judas. But I'm often amazed of people who love Judas. They love, they love people who are down and out, but they have problems with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus loved Judas as much as he loved John. He loved Annas as much as he loved Andrew. He loved Pilate as much as he loved Peter. He loved the two dying thieves. He loved the Roman soldier whose spear pierced his side. He loved the man who punched him in the face. The man who wrenched his beard from his cheeks. The man who crowned him with thorns. The man who scourged him to the bone. The man who spat in his face. Do I love like that? God's been all over me with that. He has been all over me about that. God, I, I, I'm praying, God, I want to be changed. I, 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 don't, I don't want to believe the Lord in just the box that I put him in and what I know to be true. I want to be changed. And God has been all over me about that. I don't believe Jesus was long-faced and melancholy, do you? Lord's all over me about that. Oh, it's so burdensome, it's so difficult. Can, can, would you look at verse 13? He says, and now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He I'm praying that Eddie has my joy. That's what he's saying. I don't think he was long-faced and melancholy, carried the world on his shoulders, even though he had the sin of the world on him when he went to the cross. Goodness. What kind of test, would, would it not impact my testimony even more if I do it with a smile on my face and joy in my heart? Yep, it would. It would yours too. It would, it would change our worship, wouldn't it? Lynn, it would change our worship if we would smile 
have some joy. It'll be all right tomorrow. God's got it. Cast all your care upon him for he careth for you. I was the first one at the altar when Morris Glasser preached that message. First one there. We should not be marching forward alone. We should instead march forward hand in hand. Unity together. We're doing it together. We're going to serve the Lord together. We're going to minister together. We're going to go forward together. Are you with me? Are you with me? Do you get that? Love, joy, unity. I know I preached a long message today. If that bothers you, I hope you'll come to the altar. And get God out of your box. I wish that our song services could go much longer. But people will be bothered because it's going too long. And then the preaching doesn't have any time. Because we have a box. Get God out of it. Ask him to change you from who you are. Let him do something different in your life. I am I'm a little bit emotional because that's what I've been praying in mind. And God is doing work. Go back to verse 4, please. We're, we're done. Verse 4. Jesus says, I've glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. If we're going to finish it, we better get busy on it. God, what do you want me to do? This is what I know you've called me to do, so I'm going to do it with everything I've got. If you want to change my plans, you want to give me new appointments, you want to give me a new place to serve, Lord, my life is your life. I just pray that I've answered your prayer. That because of me, there are people who now know Jesus is the Son of God. And that he so loved the world that he died on the cross so that everyone may have everlasting life. I'll take that as my cue. Let's bow our heads, please.